Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips Herb, Tax Girl. I'm a tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers and tax practitioners like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. IRS funding has been in the news lately at a time when taxpayers are already grappling with issues like delayed refunds and problems with the advanced child tax credit payments. The pandemic has exacerbated service problems at the federal agency, and we've been wondering, will things ever get back to normal? So to talk about this today, I've asked Bill Smith to the show. Bill is the National Director of Tax Technical Services at CBiz MHM's National Tax Office in Washington, D.C., and he has more than 40 years' experience in both the public and private sectors, representing businesses of all sizes and high-net-worth individuals in developing and implementing tax strategies. He consults nationally on a broad range of tax services, including transactional tax planning for corporations, partnerships, LLCs, and individuals. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Kelly, it's a pleasure. So let's talk IRS and normal. And I think before we kind of try to address the question of whether things will get back to normal, maybe we should try to figure out what a baseline of normal is, because I think that what we might consider normal outside of a federal agency is not the same thing as normal. Because for all that we've griped, I think on, on Twitter and other media about you know IRS not answering the phone and that kind of thing, the reality is IRS never picked up the phone 100% of the time. So let's kind of describe, like, how would you say baseline would be for IRS being normal? And then we can talk about, like, if it'll ever come back to that. Sure. Well, it's slightly different if you're a practitioner or a taxpayer. So if you're dialing the IRS number back in the good old days that ends in 1040, you're going to have an extremely long wait period. And even back then, they would do what they call the courtesy disconnect, which they're doing even at a greater volume now, which means they just drop the call, regardless of how long you're sitting on the phone. For practitioners, there is something called the practitioner hotline or practitioner priority hotline, where you have a little better chance of getting through. That's again, back in what we're trying to define as normal. Mm -hmm. For written correspondence, for amended tax returns on paper, Things like that got responded to relatively methodically without extended periods of time to wait. You could contact somebody at the IRS if it was an emergency, so to speak. Even if you had to wait, typically could get through if you're a practitioner. The national practitioner hotline, so to speak, would also be you know, available to help you assist you get through if you needed hire help, you know, get somebody assigned in the service who knew a little bit more about what they were talking about. Mm-hmm. That being said, you would also consistently run into issues and problems that were difficult to get someone to pay attention to. But it's a sea change different from what it is now. Agreed. Absolutely. So how is it different now? I mean, some of the, my listeners who are tax practitioners, they know firsthand I've actually spoken to attorneys in other areas where they will say to me, oh, I need to make a quick phone call to IRS. Who do I call? Because they know that I I do tax work. 
Or they'll say, my client said that they tried to get an EIN and nobody's picking up the phone. What can you do? So I actually think that while tax practitioners are aware of how different things are, I don't know that taxpayers really understand. Like I think they think when we say IRS isn't picking up the phone, that we don't want to sit on the phone for 10 minutes on hold. I don't think they understand that it's literally days and days of disconnects. Absolutely. It is. And that's for practitioners and everybody alike now. You know, the National Taxpayer Advocate, their office just announced that they won't take any, at least new cases, we're unclear about existing cases that have to do with people not getting their refunds for paper filed refund claims. And these have been sitting there for a year, more than a year. Right. Large amounts of money due. I talked to someone this morning in one of our offices who has a client with a refund claim in that's been sitting there for over a year. They brought in the um, National Taxpayer Advocate Office. They had somebody working on it, and now they don't know if it's going to be shut down or not because of the most recent announcement. They have two more carryback claims for refunds that they're about to file, and the client is going to have to shut the business down if he doesn't get his refund sometime soon. Oh, my goodness. You can tell a client in that position that's going to make them feel any better about it. And I'm not blaming the Internal Revenue Service because- They have had to deal with the pandemic in the way that many other businesses have had to deal with it. They went from having everybody on site to having everybody go home and work from home like every other business. But the IT involved with that was very different and very, as you can imagine, they're dealing with sensitive taxpayer return information. You can't just take your laptop home and go, okay, now I'm hooked into a modem or a router. And I'm set to go because of the security involved. And then you throw in the fact that we had stimulus payments that they wanted to get out on time. And every time we had a stimulus payment set to go out, the same IT people who were trying to get people set up to work from home had to shift their priorities and figure out how to get, you know, a hundred jillion stimulus payments (laughs) out on paper. So it's not like the IRS people are sitting around twiddling their thumbs and not trying to fix anything. It's just somewhat of an insurmountable problem, but it has had ripple effects that are potentially you know, catastrophic for some clients like the one I mentioned. Well, and when you mentioned the tech, that's a huge issue, right? Because there's no secret that the IRS is behind and has been even before the pandemic on technology. When I interviewed IRS Commissioner Koskinen, he was telling me that they had systems older than I was still well, in that's effect. That's only a, a few years. So sure, sure, so. right. Yeah, but he was, um, he, was, he was talking about the fact that they were behind then. And then, you know, there's been controversy over funding, you know, how much is appropriate. So there has not been an increase. And in most years, there's actually been a decrease in IRS funding. Right. And then they're hit with a pandemic. And now, as you mentioned, people are moving home. And if you are an Apple, or a, um, a Tesla, or a corporation that has a lot of money and very little restrictions on that money to throw out a problem, right? Then it is less likely that you're going to get stuck. But the IRS didn't have a big pile of money to throw at tech. They also didn't have the human resources to throw at tech. And these problems, it's funny, interesting how much it impacts 
text practitioners. And I have a quick example of, you know, it used to be, so for folks who are not practitioners, but are taxpayers, IRS doesn't communicate by email. So almost everything that goes to IRS has to be either paper mailed, it goes through a portal, but the portals are, are slow in coming. And then your other option is fax. So we joke that we're kind of like the last group of people who still have fax machines or e-faxes. And I had a situation in 2021 where I had to fax something over to IRS rep. And normally you can do that in like one fell swoop, right? And this was documentation for something that was pending. I was asked to send it in five separate faxes so that they could get it. And that blew my mind because I have a small law firm. You know, I'm not Apple and I can usually send and receive even a regular, uh, you know, a, a pretty large size fax with no problem. Um, so it was really interesting to me to be asked to hack this up and not by, it wasn't by type of information. It was literally by pages just so that the, uh, the rep could receive it and read it in a timely fashion, like while we were still on the phone. And that to me was just, it, it really was again, you know, eye-opening because when you're explaining to clients why something is taking so long, having to spend an hour, and in that case, it was actually over two hours on the phone, just transmitting information is mind-blowing. I couldn't agree more. I, I, as practitioners, as you say, we all joke about the fact that you have to use fax machines to communicate with the IRS. I only recently, because I've shut down my office and work exclusively from home now, I only recently figured out how to send and receive faxes on my computer because I don't have a hard line in my home. So there's no way to set up a fax machine. So it's crazy. Even secure, secure delivery. You know, we have all sorts of protocols to protect our clients' information through emails. The IRS is just a little bit behind on all of that technology, which is where we started the discussion. So right. it can be very frustrating at times because clients, the taxpayers, just don't understand why you, who charge so much money to them, can't get things done and can't get the IRS to respond to you. And it's double-edged sword. The taxpayer is not getting the service it needs from the IRS. You're not providing, in their minds, the correct service to them. So it really creates all sorts of ripple effects that affect not only taxpayers and their businesses, but their relationship with their professionals and the professional's relationship with the Internal Revenue Service. So you know, maybe that brings us around to the topic of, are they going to get any funding? I don't know. Right. Well, and I think that's important just to kind of piggyback on one of the things you just said about relationships. It's really difficult. You know, we're in a service profession, right? So we're not just spitting out forms. We're performing services. And so it's something we've talked about a lot on social media as a professional. If I'm sitting on the phone for two hours trying to get through, get something to the IRS that if I were dealing with you might have been a five minute email. Right. What do I charge the client? So that becomes problematic when you're talking about relationships because, and again, this is something we've talked about extensively on social media, and I don't think there's an answer, but like in theory, I should be charging my hourly rate. In theory, I should be charging my hourly rate when I'm sitting on hold. In theory, you know, I should be charging the client every time that I'm 
redirected because the the person that I'm talking to at IRS can't help me. And then they say, well, you need to talk to somebody else. But you know, my, my friend Don always jokes, we don't live in theory, right? Because if I send a taxpayer a bill, let's say they had a $1,000 error on a return. If I've spent two solid days working on that $1,000 error when it should have taken five minutes, how much do you charge for that? And so when you talk about ripple effects, it really is, it's frustrating for tax practitioners, not only because it's time spent, but then how do I charge for that time? How do I keep a client happy? And then you look at you know, if you say, well, you know what, I'm only going to charge an hour's worth of time because that's what I feel like is fair. I'm doing air quotes for fair. Right. But realistically, I've now, you, you were talking about your client that was frustrated. I've now put aside maybe five other clients while I attended to this. So, you know, they might have paid me for an hour's worth of work each. And, you know, so it's really, it, you, when you talked about Ripple, I think that's a really good way to describe what's happening because it's not just, you know, sometimes I think this, gets oversimplified to somebody not getting a refund on time. But as you mentioned, it's, can you keep the doors open at your business while you're waiting? What does it mean for your tax practitioner? Can you pay your professional to assist you? I mean, there's just a lot going on, which I think, you know, does bring us to this question of, is this as bad as it's going to get? I guess it's kind of my question for you. Like if we're talking about getting back to normal, do, do we think it gets worse or are we hopeful that it gets better? Well, we're certainly hopeful that it's going to get better. Will it get better is is a different question. And just to go back for a second to what we were talking about, it's not just the inability to get through to the service because you're put on hold for a week and a half. If you submit things in writing, even for cases, for example, that are in appeals or that are in audit, and it's interesting, I'm, I'm going all over the, the map here. But when the service makes a demand of us, they give us, let's say, 14 days to respond. Right. But when you send something back to the service, it can sit there for a year, and that's perfectly fine. It doesn't, it's not a two-way street. And there are all sorts of things when you have to communicate in writing, whether it's sent by fax or whether it's sent in the mail, where it just goes into a black hole, and you don't know when or if anybody's ever going to get to it. And we've had cases where we submitted an amended return that picked up a small amount of gross revenue that had been missed on the original return, but then had a huge credit reflecting ultimately a very large refund. The IRS bifurcated the return, the amended return, and gave the revenue side to one person and sent the credit side to another person. The revenue side got picked up very quickly and sure. <laughs> we submitted a refund claim and we got a bill from the IRS instead because they processed the revenue side and the credit side was just sitting in limbo somewhere as a result. So are we hopeful? I'll see if I can bring this back around. Are we hopeful <laughs> that it's going to get better? We're very, very hopeful. And I think in my mind, I know there's a big contingent of people out there and probably among your listeners who would like to defund the IRS completely or at least cut it back. And why on earth would we give them more money? But they really need money. And this comes from somebody who represents taxpayers, not the IRS, because they're in desperate need of IT, of hiring, being able to audit, 
it, certainly the larger taxpayers, you know, they're large corporations who back in the good old days would have an IRS revenue agent with an office in their building doing, you know, auditing 365 days a year, whatever many work days there are in that. Right. So they definitely need money. Maybe you can argue about the amount they need. And that's where the argument is now. Right now, we've got in the Build Back Better Act that was passed by the House, they proposed $80 billion of funding over 10 years. So $8 billion a year for the IRS. Mm -hmm. And what's being talked about now in the Senate and I'm happy to get into the reconciliation rules if you want, but that may be the kind of thing you counseled me against with the, with your <laughs> listenership. Well, my, my listeners might like a quick and dirty summary of it, but yeah. Okay. I think that the, the, the processes are probably the part where people are going to want to forward, fast forward ahead, but I think that the summary is definitely worth uh, our time. Sure. So, so there are these bizarre procedural rules in the Senate that require 60 votes in the Senate to pass legislation unless you use this procedural method called reconciliation, which has all of these parameters on it. So the Democrats, of course, have somewhere between 48 and 50 senators in the party, if you're depending on whether you're counting Mr. Manchin and the cinema as Democrats or something a little more conservative. But mm -hmm. assuming they get their 50 votes, if they use the reconciliation rules, they can pass it because the vice president can break the tie. All right. So that's what the Build Back Better Act is using. So they have to get to 50 votes in the Senate. So the Senate will propose amendments to the bill that was passed in the House of Representatives, and then it would have to go back. But one of the amendments they're talking about right now is limiting the ability of the IRS to use any of its $80 billion to conduct audits of taxpayers whose adjusted gross income is under $400,000. And that $400,000 number is used as sort of a, a cutoff line through a lot of provisions in the Build Back Better Act. So that kind of defines wealthy Americans for purposes of this legislation. And I'm fascinated by this provision, by the way. Um, it's a relatively new one. And I, I, when I saw it, I was really fascinated for a lot of reasons. I mean, and I'm sure you are too, but like, there's all kinds of questions that go through your head. Like, is, is the 400 a hard cutoff? What if you're accusing someone of not reporting 200 and they only reported 300? Can you argue that they're not subject to audit because they're under that number? Like, there's a lot, I think, that has would have to be worked out if that were to uh, actually be successful. This again takes us back a little bit to the IRS having to pivot instantaneously for doing things like cutting the stimulus checks. Anytime there's legislation, they get directed by Congress to implement all this legislation, to write regulations. They, as you well know, have taken to sending out notices, they're called. The IRS will issue a notice and it'll try to explain what you're supposed to do for the employee retention tax credit, for you know all of these things that get enacted in legislation. So this would be one of those things in this legislation, if it passes, that they would dump, so to speak, on the IRS to explain and implement. So they would be left with the job of 
in your example, if you've got somebody with 300,000 of reported AGI, but the IRS think there's 200,000 of omitted gross income, is that 500 for the $400,000 cutoff? Or do you have the, oh no, you can't order him because he only fraudulently reported $300,000. Okay. <laughs> right, right. So, and the importance is the IRS doesn't have this gigantic team of people who sit there twiddling their thumbs until new legislation passes. They're assigned to the new legislation group. They're actively doing in the middle of 10 million other projects when legislation drops and they have to shift to something else to try and explain to taxpayers how you report it. We just had, for example, guidance on what to do for the fourth quarter of the employer retention tax credit, which they retroactively repealed in the Infrastructure Act. Right. So they dropped that act. People at the IRS have to react to that because they've got to give guidance and they're they're trying their best, God bless them, to keep up with, <laughs> with what they have to do. So that's why I harken back to, you know, I'm not really blaming the IRS for being incompetent in any way. They're just hamstrung in so many different ways. And it is interesting because when you talk about specifically like audits, the IRS is often accused of not being efficient. One of the criticisms that has come out of this, uh, this in this discussion about whether or not they should get more money is the notion that they often do audit lower income taxpayers for things like EITC, those kinds of issues, instead of focusing on maybe the billionaire with the offshore. And when you go back to an efficiency argument, you know, the EITC and some of these other individual tax credits, basically it's low hanging fruit, right? Like you can put a, a couple of agents on those and uh, get through, uh, maybe not on top in terms of dollars, but in terms of cases, you can accomplish a lot. Whereas a really sophisticated tax fraud scheme could take years to work through on a case, could, assuming that it gets noticed in the first place. And the level of financial expertise needed to work some of those kinds of cases is also a lot different than matching a social security number to see if this person was actually claimed properly. So some of the, the audits and exams that go on, um, especially the paper audits, you know, where it's just some with the IRS saying, you've made a mistake, prove to us that you did not. I do think that, you know, it's, it's easy to be critical that the IRS is chasing those. And again, depends on who you talk to about whether or not they're actually chasing them. But statistically, it does bear out <laughs> that there is, it's a lot easier for them to, to chase those, those lower hanging fruit uh, items. And as you mentioned, you're not going after maybe the more sophisticated tax issues. And I do think that that's where this dollar amount is, I find a little fascinating because is it really a dollar issue or is it more of a like a issue spotting? Optics. Yeah, yeah. Like there's a whole there's a whole world that is very much known to IRS in terms of what's happening, whether that's crypto, whether it's offshore, whether, you know, these these issues. But it's a lot more difficult to go after those. And again, we want to draw, I think, it's not we want to draw a line in the sand between we want to chase rich versus not rich. Um, I think it's it should be more issue spotting, but I don't know that they have the, the bandwidth to do that. It's a big problem. And, you know, the optics, the newsworthy items are always, you know, they brought down a tax shelter or they brought down a billionaire mm -hmm. or that sort of thing. But you're right. The vast majority of income raised is raised from that group of lower income taxpayers because 
they outnumber the billionaires by a very large percentage. So if you collect $10 from a million of them, that's $10 million. Mm -hmm. If it's easy to do that, whereas bringing down the conservation easement group, so to speak, has just been this ongoing process where either that or the Oh, the small captive insurance company program that they have. Or the Brockman, the Brockman issue, the offshore, you know, that's supposedly one of the largest frauds ever, but they're claiming he has dementia. And you know, <laughs> so is that a case? Well, that goes, doesn't that go back to the Steve Martin line where you just plead, I forgot? Right. Yeah. right. <laughs> so anyway, like I said, the optics are good there, but the money is raised from that group and it has an impact going back to reconciliation because the administration has been saying when we fund the IRS, it's going to raise all this money. And there's two aspects to that. One is that the joint committee who formally determines how much is going to be raised, put the number much lower. And now if they cap this, you can't use any of the money to audit under 400,000. That number is going to drop much more dramatically. That would come into the reconciliation equation, except you don't get to count money raised by the IRS by funding the IRS because it's not really a tax provision. That was a controversial reporting issue. I think that we heard a lot about a couple of weeks ago about whether or not they were allowed to officially use that number. Right. But it's still for politics. The administration wants that number to be as high as possible. So they can say, well, even if we can't count it for reconciliation, it still counts for the economy, quote unquote, right. right? Right. So there's a lot going on. And the margin, as everybody knows, is very slim to get something passed. So so let's let's talk priorities then. Like, let's assume that there's funding. It doesn't even have to be the 80 billion. Let's just assume that there's more funding than there was last year. If you were the commissioner, what would you consider to be priorities? Like, where would you throw the money? Because that is uh, kind of what we've been talking about. Like, who decides, and it, it may be Congress, but, you know, how do you decide what's important to taxpayers? And I think that people who work in the profession probably know better than those in Congress. So where would you throw extra dollars to see if you could get IRS back to, quote, normal? The two number one and number two priorities, I believe, are IT and personnel. Okay. They're looking, we already talked extensively about IT. So that just has to be upgraded. And as I mentioned, something like a third, they have lost tremendous amounts of people over the last 10 years that they didn't get to replace because of funding cuts, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So they're down a tremendous number where they would like to be to make it equal to 10 years ago. And then they need to hire more people. And like I said, they have something like a third of their entire workforce is eligible for retirement. So they're going to have to focus on personnel. There is, I think Aaron Collins, the National Taxpayer Advocates said, it's one thing to say, you know, we're going to hire all these people, but it's another to get them hired and trained up, assuming you can hire them and nobody can hire anybody apparently anymore. So, <laughs> right. They're facing the same problems as private industry and trying to get people in the door and then getting them trained up. And how quickly will this have an impact is very difficult to know. But you can't put your head in the sand and say, well, because we don't know how quickly we can get them trained up, we're not going to hire anybody. You still got to throw the resources at that. And then behind those two things, which are absolutely paramount, is 
probably getting a, a stronger audit present in the higher end, higher income business entities, and especially in partnerships and LLCs. They're used to you know, the big publicly traded corporations, but now you have so many wealthy partnerships and LLCs that they need to increase their presence in that market, so to speak. And we actually had um, a recent interview that's coming up on the program as well about tax crimes generally. And one of the things that we talked about that was really interesting in that program, which I just wanted to kind of tease based on what you just said, a lot of folks, I say a lot, many folks associate tax crimes as being victimless crimes, right? So, you know, when people are, are being audited, when we're talking about auditing at some of these higher levels, to some extent, there are some taxpayers, I believe, who kind of are like, you know, if they get away with it, why not, right? And there's a couple of reasons why that's not good generally. And, you know, chiefly will tell you one of them is that you should believe in the integrity of the system. So you should believe that everybody pays their fair share because that's kind of the basis of our tax system. But one of the other issues that was raised that I had not actually given a lot of thought to which is actually surprising because I love like the whole IRSCI tax crimes, like I'm intrigued by that whole department. But we were talking the other day on, on the program about the fact that a lot of tax crimes and tax evasion is almost always linked to other bad things. It is not that somebody commits a tax crime, a big tax crime. I'm not talking about, you know, not reporting your 1099. I'm talking about like systemic tax fraud. It's rare that a company or an individual does that in a vacuum. It is often linked to something else. And I thought that that was a really interesting point that I had not really given a lot of thought of to, because when you talk about these policy arguments for increasing audits, obviously increased revenue is one of them. Obviously, faith in the system is another. I hadn't really given a whole lot of thought to the idea that a lot of what you see when there's a lot of money being hidden, there's often a reason why beyond just, I don't like to pay taxes. Right. It's, it's typically not an auto dealership who's doing very well. It's more likely to be someone who has the revenue from illegal activity and can't really report it to the IRS because that would expose the illegal activity. Mm -hmm. You're trying to hide the illegal activity. So you're committing one crime to hide another crime. That is often the case. And they, you know, there wouldn't be the term money laundering if that wasn't you know, the primary issue. Right. And I just I just think from, a, you know, when you're talking about Congress and them trying to put forth reasons for things, you know, you can't always just go with the IRS would waste money or the, you know, because there's a lot of both both sides, right, are going to argue these very, I think, black and white arguments like don't give the IRS more money because they'll just waste it or you need to give the IRS more money so we can raise money. Like there's a lot of nuance and a lot of things that don't get talked about, which I'm just really surprised by. I wasn't surprised by early on, but I am surprised that as we continue to have these conversations, whether about funding or increased technology or whatever piece of, of IRS effectiveness you want to target, I'm surprised that we don't talk about some of the bigger picture things more. Because I do think people have a, a different sense of fairness when they think about beyond just money. I agree. I think that's why people are angry about the audit situation, like, it's not fair. Like, I'm not a criminal. You know, I think this is that whole inherent fairness. Right. And, and on their side, you can argue, well, the IRS, particularly in this, this day and age, is doing things very inefficiently, and it's expensive to hire professionals. 
I already hired my professional to make sure I filed a good tax return. Now you're auditing it and I've got to hire them back again to make sure the audit goes well. And I never did anything wrong. Right. Right. So I'm angry. On the other hand, if told individuals, what if we could lower the uh, social security tax withheld from your wages down to 2% if we funded the IRS in a way that made everybody in criminal activity pay their fair share of taxes, everybody would go, well, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Right. Right. Yeah. So when we're talking about, obviously, we're not going to see that next year. No, we're not. But what do you think we might see next year? Obviously, there's a lot that hasn't been worked out yet because of what's going on in Congress. But do you see any potential big changes coming down the road in terms of just IRS? I know, for example, you did mention that they have a commitment to more hiring. Do you see any indications that things might get back to normal or close to normal or maybe just not not normal? If they don't get more funding it will slowly improve because they would be getting back to the prior normal, which needed to be improved. So it would be back to more of a semblance of that because they're not getting defunded. We're really arguing about, should we give them extra money so they can start to implement these positive changes? Mm -hmm. Or many would think they're negative changes because they might get caught. (laughs) However, like I said, we're not talking about defunding the IRS. They still collect something like 98% of the revenue that runs the country. So they are an important agency within the United States government. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be a slow recovery if we can we ever get out of COVID and people can go back to offices and they can get back to where their bad systems are are running better like they used to, as opposed to being at home. And how the heck do you get mail distribution when you have an appeals officer who's working from her home and you have to send your document to the IRS office and then they've got to figure out somehow how to get it to that person. So if we can get back in the offices, that would be one step. We really do need to give them at least some extra funding if you could argue about the amount, but I don't know if that'll happen. If it doesn't happen, I still think there will be slow improvement. Uh, The commissioners talked about Mail is being opened on time now, and the National Taxpayer <laughs> Advocate said, opening is different from processing. Right. Did he say that everything's getting processed timely, that the backlog is done, the 8 million envelopes they hadn't opened are being processed? It's one thing to get those babies open. It's another to do something with them. So Absolutely. We've got to get that, that huge hole they got pushed into. They're slowly digging their way out of. As they dig their way out of it more and more, we'll see better IRS service, but not like we would like to see, obviously. Well, let's hope that it's better. I said we're all hopeful. <laughs> we're hoping. And and I'm 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 a little bit upset with you that you just launched into next year. You don't have any faith that we're gonna get some passed by the end of the month. Well, if we were all betting on December 24th, of course, I was going to say if, if, if we learned anything throughout history, it's that when tax professionals and tax journalists want to be um, home with their families, that's when we're going to get some legislation. So you're, you're probably right. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much uh, for being on the show today. If my listeners wanted to find you either on the Web or on social media and you wanted to be found, where would you send them? Well, you can always go to the cbiz.com website, and I always go by Bill Smith, not William Smith. So you can search for Bill Smith, and that'll pop up. 
You can actually search on Google Bill Smith CBiz, and you'll find all sorts of fun and interesting things on there, including being in Forbes with this very lovely host that I'm talking to. Or <laughs> you, you can find me on LinkedIn and on Twitter. I'm I'm around. Awesome. Well, and we'll put those links into the show notes so that people can easily find you. Thanks so much again for being on the show. Thank you, Kelly. Always a pleasure. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening, because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be. The number of words in the tax code is estimated to be 1 million, about the same length as the entire Harry Potter series. Add in IRS regs, rev rulings, and case law, and it can be a lot. We all need a little help to sort it out. Each week on the Tax Girl podcast, I talk to the best in the business. And these aren't crazy technical dives. They're interesting and easy to digest looks at topics that matter to you. It's all that you need to stay ahead on the most important tax issues. You can subscribe to the podcast for free on taxgirl.com because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't be.